Well, good morning, Arbor. It's so good to be with you this morning. My name is Neely McQueen, and I'm a pastor at Overlake, and um, good friends with a lot of people in this room. I see so many people that I love. Um, Jake and I have done ministry together for a lot of years. I'm such a fan of him and his family. Love them so much. And when I was pregnant with my first, who's now 15, um, I was working in student ministries at Overlake, and there was a couple teenagers that I was like, they are amazing teenagers. And I could have my kids turn out like them. That would be amazing. And so I did what every smart young person does. I find um, who's mom, who's the mom of these kids. And I said, you need to mentor me. And that's how I met Allison. Um, and she hung, we hung out together for a while. She taught me the way. She taught me the way. She taught me how to make enchiladas um, a, and a marinade for a flank snake, steak. And I've never done them since she showed me because it turns out actually I'm not a good cook. So that's part of the deal. But um, it, I love people here. There's so many people that I love. So I'm super excited to be here this morning with you. And you guys are in the middle of this series called Outsiders, kind of examining Jesus' words when he said, go and make disciples. And then like looking at his life and examining how he did that and how he modeled what he showed us. And then you've been unpacking this big idea, which is love outsiders by inviting them in. Love outsiders by inviting them in. Now, I grew up in the church. I grew up going, my parents had a rule. If you live under our house, you go to church every time the doors are open. So we went every time it was open. And um, the youth pastor, I loved him. I was so excited to be a part of the youth ministry. And you hear all the time from the youth pastor, you got to invite your friends. you got to bring your friends. you got to tell others about Jesus. And I so badly wanted to please him. Like, I wanted him to be proud of me and love me and think I was doing amazing. So I really wanted to invite others in. But I also was like 15 and awkward and a teenager and wanted people to like, like my peers to like me. And so I was super nervous about this tension of like, how do I please my youth pastor? And how do I not like lose friends? How do I fit in? And so I think I came up with what I thought was like the best compromise of all time. And that was Christian t-shirts. <laughs> now I didn't invent them. But they, they were amazing. And I wore them. I made this commitment. Like, I'm going to wear one, one day a week, every week in high school. And I was, like, super proud of myself. In fact, I even put in my yearbook picture, my junior year, I am wearing one. I'm, like, so proud. The bummer is, like, all you can see is that I'm wearing a T-shirt. You know, you can't see what it says. But it was so cool. It had an like, artistic expression of Jesus on the cross. And it said, one by one. And I was like, yeah, that's good. That's good. And then I had another one. This was probably my all-time favorite because it said, the next time the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Ooh, 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 right? Or um, there's this other one that had like fish swimming this way and one, the like Christian fish swimming this way. And it said, go against the flow. You know, I was like so proud of myself. And while I can't tell you like a significant moment or conversation I had around those, I am pretty certain when I get to heaven, there's gonna be a handful of people that come up to me and they'll be like, you, I'm here because of you. That shirt changed my life. I'm certain of it. Um, actually, I'm not certain of it. I, I feel uncertain at this moment. But what I'm so grateful for is that in my life, I had people come alongside me, professors, teachers, pastors, who came alongside me and, and showed me kind of a different way. They pointed me to this model of Jesus and how Jesus invited others in, how Jesus engaged with people. 
Because if you are a follower of Jesus and you've read his words and you've heard the messages of what he said, you know that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we are commissioned, we are called to invite others in. That's, that's a very clear mandate for us. But if you're also like me as a follower of Jesus, you've wrestled with like, what does that really look like? What does it really mean to live that out? What does it really do for every day of our life? And so there's this tension that we feel. And there comes this point where we have to discover exactly what does it mean to follow Jesus' instructions in our everyday life. So what better way than to look at the life of Jesus? Look at how he engaged people and, and look at how he talked to people. Look at the people he chose to include. So this morning, I want to look at an encounter that Jesus had. It, it's, it's a very unique encounter. It's actually the longest recorded one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus. In all of the Gospels, the longest conversation that Jesus has with one person. And it's found in the book of John, and it's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And so I want to take a little bit of a look at this, dive into it, and see what we can encounter. I think there are so many good truths for us in this. There's so much in there that encourages us and challenges us to step into inviting others. So let's turn to John 4, um, which we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to unpack it a little bit at a time, but you can follow along with me. So in verse 3 it starts, So he, Jesus, left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to a Samaritan village of Sakar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please, give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? I want to pause right here because I do want to point out two really significant things. In, the, in this moment, Jesus does something very radical. And if we don't stop, we miss it. He chooses to engage a woman who's a Samaritan. And the big deal here is this, that Samaritans and Jews had this long history of conflict. There was a lot of animosity between the two of them. Jewish people often referred to Samaritans as idolaters or hypocrites. There's records of a famous Jewish rabbi saying, is may I never set eyes on a Samaritan. May I never be thrown into his company. So it's a big deal. The Jews and the Samaritans, they did not like each other. I don't even want to be in your company, let alone see you. There was bad blood between them. So first, she's a Samaritan, but then she's a woman. And I was reading this commentary as it was unpacking this passage of Scripture, and this is how the, uh, the commentary started to summarize this point. It said, the Jewish attitude towards women was less than ideal. It's <laughs> one way to summarize it, less than ideal. See the, see, the Jewish people had these laws that protected them. And these laws, they started to protect, go a little extreme in how they protected them. And so there was this fear, first, that women were often unclean because of the purity laws. And so a man didn't want to come encounter in contact with a woman because of the purity laws and become unpure. But there were also laws in how you engage the opposite sex, of being too friendly. What does that look like? And so there was this fine line, this tension between how you would engage a woman. In fact, there is this, this rule that they say it's called the black and blue rule. 
that when a Pharisee was coming upon a woman walking in the same way, they would close their eyes because they didn't want to stumble into sin. And it was called black and blue because they would run into things and fall down. Like they would trip, you know, like they got black and blue from it. But there's this, this tension between them. So in one moment, one quick moment, Jesus wipes all that away, right? He sits down and he engages a Samaritan woman. He says, listen, the barriers of race and gender, they got to go. They got to go. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means to invite others in, we got to go outside the lines. We got to go outside the lines. You have to be willing to step outside the lines you're comfortable with. Maybe there's someone in your neighborhood, maybe someone you work with that makes you feel a little uncomfortable because they're different than you. Or there's tension or there's conflict. It's messy. But we miss out on the richness of diversity when we don't engage people who are different than us. See, we've been taught to surround ourselves with people who are just like us. They look like us. They talk like us. They value us. But what Jesus actually shows us is, no, you've got to go outside of that. If we're going to follow the model of Jesus, we have to be willing to engage different people. One of the elders at Overlake, he said to me that every time I build relationship with someone who is totally different than me, I learn more about the image of God. Because when he reads the scripture, it says that we are all made in the image of God. So when I sit with a brother or sister who is different than me, I understand God more. See, I think we miss out because we're afraid of people that are different than us. We miss out because we seem to surround ourselves with likeness instead of going outside the lines like Jesus did. When I was in college, I spent a summer in Vietnam teaching English, and I loved it. And while I was there, I was working with the underground church. So I would teach English to college students, and then I would slowly start to engage them about faith and talk to them about faith. And if I sensed they were interested, I'd invite them to the underground church. Well, I'd built a relationship with a couple students, and they were like, hey, we want to take you on a food tour of Saigon. And I was like, I am in. I love food. Take me. Show me the way. What I didn't know is that our transportation was like three of us on a scooter. You know, like we were like scrunched in. I was in the middle, safety first, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but it was amazing. It was it's such a great experience. Like when I went, it was over 20 years ago. The uh, American embassy hadn't opened up, so people had rarely seen uh, people like me, and they were touching my skin, coming up and, and saying, I know someone in Texas. Do you know them? I was like, no, it's not like that. You know, like it's hard for me to explain, you know. Um, it was great. I loved it. I had such a wonderful experience. But we're on this food tour, and first they're like ordering me oysters, which I don't like anyway. But then I had also seen like the place where they were getting the oysters from, and I was like, I don't feel good about this at all. So I'm like covering that thing in sriracha because I'm like, hey, this will kill all of that germs, plus I won't taste it. So I'm like, just down I go, you know, down the hatch, as they say. And it was like, fine, it's fine. And then we start talking, and they're like, you know, have you ever had duck? And I'm like, yeah, we eat duck in America. We're not dumb. You know, we eat all the animals, you know, bring them, you know. Maybe I should say, be careful, because they actually do eat all the animals in Vietnam. We don't do that. Um, but I was like, yeah, we eat duck. And they're, we're having this translation issue, because I didn't speak very much Vietnamese. They, their Eng English wasn't that great. And they're like, no, 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 duck in a shell, duck in a shell. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean. And they're like, we really want to buy it for you, because you are our teacher. And I was like, I would be honored. Um, what I didn't know that meant is that what came out was a hard-boiled egg with a baby duck inside. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, so cute. 
food. <laughs> you know, and they give you a little spoon to like dig it out of the shell. So you're just like ripping duck apart, you know? I'm like, okay. Again, sriracha, you're gonna do, I'm put, um, it's so good. As my gag reflex is going crazy. That night, I literally dreamed that Huey and Louie were like, you ate our brother, you know? Like, I was like, it was the worst experience. I was like, that is crazy. But as I look back on my time in Vietnam, what I realized, that time was a gift. Because I was surrounded by people who, whose lives were so different than mine. The Christians I engaged were so different. The non-Christians, their experience was so different. It shaped who I was. But I would have missed it if I would have stayed with people just like me. And you don't have to go around the world to experience that. Our beautiful community is so diverse, so different. And so all we have to do is be willing to go outside the lines. I have some friends who intentionally make friendships with Muslims. One, because they believe that by friendship they'll engage them and, and God will meet them and lives can be changed, but also because they value the uniqueness of a different group of people. They want to build relationship with people that aren't just like them. We have to be willing to go outside the lines. We believe that God works when we step out. So who's in your neighborhood, who's in your workplace that requires you to get uncomfortable and step outside that line? Who is it? It might be uh, messy, it might not be easy, but is it possible for you to go outside the line so you can love like Jesus? So let's, let's see what happen next, happens next in the story. Picking up in verse 10. Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? So this conversation goes from like, hey, can I have a drink of water? So let's talk about all your husbands, really fast, like not a lot of time there. And I, I do want to just, this is a total sidebar, like, gee, you can get away with this because he's God. You and I, not so much. Not a good tactic for us. Jesus, definitely, but not so much, much us. But Jesus invites this woman into a conversation. He says, can I have a drink of water? And then he starts to tell her an offer she can't refuse. Like, I have water that will give you living life. And she, she's interested. She's intrigued. He knows her story. He knows that this is something that she's craving. And so he offers her refreshing life. She's curious, so she asks more. And at that point, Jesus just turns the temperature up on the conversation. He gives her a simple instruction. Go get your husband. And he knows, he already knows her story. And she's hesitant to hold back, and he reveals her story more and more. And you don't have to be a counselor, a therapist, a pastor to know that a story like this is a story filled with pain, shame, heartache, heartbreak. 
And so this woman in this time of life, in this, in this culture, this is a story of embarrassment and hurt. And for Jesus to draw attention to it, he knew something. And here's the deal. I think when we read this story, we read about this woman, we, we think she's like a Hollywood elite. She's just going through men right and left. But if you really understand the culture, this is the kind of woman who would write a hashtag Me Too story. She's a victim. She's not someone who has chosen this crazy life. She is a victim. And I just want to say this really clearly. If you guys ever wonder, if Jesus was here now, who would he be hanging out with? He'd be hanging out with the Me Too women. He'd be right there with them saying, I'm with you. I have something better to offer you. Jesus knew her story. He understood how her story shaped her, how her story impacted her daily activities. She was at the well at a time women didn't come because she was embarrassed and filled with shame. He knew that his offer would change her life. So when we look to invite others in, it's important for us to keep this in mind too, that when we invite others in, we have to understand people's stories. And understanding requires listening. And it has to require a commitment to building a relationship. It's not listening and engaging someone so that I can lead them to Jesus, a conversion. It's listening because of a commitment relationship, a commitment to building life together. It's different. Jesus is investing. He's listening to her. And for us to hear the stories, we have to take time. We have to slow down. James says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Listening requires patience. It requires commitment. It requires an ability to say, I'm not going anywhere. I want to hear what you have to say. Who's in your community? Who has a story to tell? Who, who has something they are dying to share with someone? They're waiting for someone to be curious enough to listen. And by listening, what you do is you gain understanding. And by gaining understanding, you know exactly how to invite them in. It's so clear how to invite them in to know Jesus. It's so clear because you know them. You understand their story. Jesus honors her. He gives her an, a moment to reflect, and he says, I know your story. I know where you're coming from. And the woman does something here I think is so funny because like all of us have had this kind of moment where like the conversation gets too deep too fast and you're like, whoa, 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 let's pivot. And she's like, oh, you know I have five husbands, that's true. Hey, where are we supposed to worship? Because you Jews worship there, we say, you know, she like totally changes the subject. And what's so amazing about the compassion of Jesus is that he honors that. Like instead of pushing on the gas about the conversation of her brokenness, he, he takes his foot off and he says, oh, Let's talk about theology. Let's talk about this question. So he goes on, verse 21, he says, it says, Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman. Now just pause again, because what a gift. If you're, if you're this woman who avoids people who, filled with so much shame, and sh Jesus looks at you and says, dear woman, what a gift. The time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. But God is, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask him, which this is, that, this is funny to me. Uh, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The, the writer obviously knows that's what they were thinking, but no one has the nerve to say it out loud. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. So again, what I said, this is the longest one-on-one conversation that Jesus had. There's obviously going to be so much powerful truth, so much we could spend time unpacking. I mean, it is full of things to talk about. But what I do want to just point out here really quickly, because I do think it's important in the conversation when we're talking about outsiders, is to realize this. This is the first time in the book of John where Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah. It's the first time he's owning this title. And who does Jesus choose to reveal that information to? A total outsider. He could have chosen anyone, but he chose a Samaritan woman with five husbands and living with a man she's not married to. And she says, the Messiah will come. And he's like, come here. I got a secret for you. I'm the one. I'm the one you're waiting for. What a... What a mind-blowing reality. This shows such power in who Jesus is and, and how much he cares about the outsider. Here is a woman who doesn't know better. She has re- been referred to as a less than, and Jesus says, I've got something for you. I've got living water, and now I'm going to tell you something. I'm the Messiah. He gives her this information, but he also gives her a break from her own pain. He pushed in on her pain, and then he takes a break, and he says, now let me tell you something about me. He shows compassion. I don't know about you, but I, I think about often the voice that I read Scripture in, like how I, how I hear it, because I think this is important for us. As a longtime follower of Jesus, I've grown up in the church, I said this, I have found that often when I read Scripture, the tone in which I hear it reflects how I view God. So I tend, and just because of my upbringing and how I heard the gospel the first time, I tend to hear it with a shame, like its tone is shameful. And so I think about this story, and I've often heard this story and thought Jesus was saying, oh, naughty woman, you have so many husbands and you have a boyfriend, you know, and shame. It's, that's how I've, how I've heard it. But the more I process it, and the more I imagine myself in her, her shoes, I imagine, first of all, I have a conversation with someone, and this someone's like, hey, I know everything you've ever done wrong, and I'm going to tell you. First of all, that is a very long conversation. Second of all, it's not good. It's not a great conversation. It doesn't fill me with like, oh, yes, let's go run and tell the village. Every, you know, I'm not going to go to my neighbors and be like, you will not believe. Today I met someone who told me all the bad things I've ever done. It's so great. You should come meet him. Like, that's not how, it's not how it goes down. Like, I'm like, I don't know who you are, but I got to keep you away from my people because my people cannot find this information out about me. Like, that's how I read it. But it must be different than that because that's not how the woman responds to this. Instead, she runs, finds her whole entire village and says, you have to come find this man with me. You have to meet him. And the only way I can see this story playing out that way 
is I have to change the tone in which I read scripture. I have to change it. Because Jesus must have been so gentle, so compassionate, so loving, so engaging, that he would look at a woman and say, look, I know all your brokenness. I know all your dirty little secrets. And her response would be, I can't wait to tell everybody about you. It has to be that he was so loving. And I think what we need to understand is we read judgment into his story, this story where we need to read love. The woman's excited. She can't wait to tell because she has encountered love, not judgment. Reminds me of a Christmas song and one of my favorites, Oh Holy Night. There's this line in the song that says this, His law is love. His law isn't judgment. His law isn't rules. His law is love. So to invite others in, we have to transform our judgment into love. Our judgment into love. When I first started working with teenagers, I worked with teenagers at a church in Everett, and I was assigned by the youth pastor to, youth pastor to take over the challenging small group, which was awesome. That's what you love is when they're like, we're going to have you take this one. And there was a girl in the group. Her name was Pebbles. Pebbles, if you're here, I'm so glad you're still coming to church. Um, that was her real name, not her street name, um, but she... She was like in anger management classes, had been like in juvie, and she just like in the middle of a message would start yelling profanity. She would fight with people, and he's like, you have to keep pebbles under control in the service. And I'm literally like, um, are you sure? Like, don't you want me to take the girls to the mall that want their nails done? That feels like my group of people. You know, like, I'm like, I don't know, pebbles, okay, if you trust me. Pebbles literally kissed my fiance at one point, threatened to beat me up a couple times. It was really a life-changing experience for me. But one night uh, after youth group, Pebbles says, I need to ride home. And I'm like, sure, I can take you home, not a problem. So I drive her, to her into her neighborhood, and we're parked right in front of her house, and she says, hold on, I need to call my mom. She calls her mom and says, can you open the door? I'm here. So Pebbles' mom opens the door, and she's like, okay, I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to run. And I was like, okay. So she one, two, three, out of my car as fast as she can to her house and slams the door. So the next Wednesday, I'm like, Pebbles, what was that whole thing about? And she says, well, there's a lot of kids in my neighborhood who want to beat me up. And so my neighborhood's not really safe. The only place I'm safe in my neighborhood is in my home. And in this moment, suddenly, like, my whole, like, view of Pebbles is changing. See, I'd seen pebbles through an eye of judgment, like the pain that she was caught, the problem she was, all the issues she was creating, and my view of her was so judgmental. But what it really needed to be loved, here's a girl who doesn't feel safe. She's coming to church and she's acting out because it's safe. People are welcoming her. In her neighborhood, she's not welcome, but here we've let her be safe. And sure, it's messy, but it's different when someone knows they're judged, and when someone knows, they're loved. See, it's easy to judge people because people are messy. People are messy. People have been hurt by each other, by their families, by the church. People have been hurt, and it is messy. People are messy. And it's easy to judge. Reggie Joyner says, Some of us have been so programmed to see sin in people that we have forgotten how to see the image of God in them. We've been trained to judge, but Jesus is asking us, he's inviting us to view through the lens of love. See, because judgment and shame, they are great for behavior modification. Like they'll change a behavior, but they won't allow connection. 
They won't allow relationship. They won't invite in. Only love can do that. Love connects people. Love invites in. Paul says this, he says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's kindness, it's, it's not that the rules are absent, it's not that the law is absent, but what invites us into that is kindness. One person said, love is the easiest way of evangelism. The stories of people experiencing Jesus because you want to debate about them, about science, they're very minimal, maybe even non-existent. But the stories of people encountering Jesus because they were loved by another person who kept pointing them to Jesus are numerous. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, you can do all these things, you can love people, you can do all these things, and you can say all these words, but if you don't love, it sounds like a gong. See, the invitation is to love people. To love people, not judge them. We don't change people by judging them. We change and invite them to be changed through love. So how does the story end? In verse 39, many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. And when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village, so he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. They had said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard for ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. We believe, first because of you, because you invited us in, but also because we've encountered Jesus. And that's a good reminder for us that this inviting others in, this living out this commission of going and making disciples, in the end, it's not really what we do. We play a part. We have a, we have a job to do. But God is the one who transforms lives. It's a conversation with one woman, an outsider. And what does it lead to? It leads to a changed village, a changed community. Jesus invited an outsider, a broken and hurting woman, into a conversation that led to life change. So I want you to consider, what are the opportunities you have every day? Every day you have an opportunity to invite someone else in to invite someone else in who's outside your lines, who, who's different than you, to see people that are not like you and invite them into conversation, invite them into relationship, believing that when they encounter you and the love you have for them, it leads them to an encounter with Christ. Because I, I know this to be true. When someone encounters the goodness of God, they're transformed. Every time they're transformed. So we believe that. We believe that if we invite people in, God will do the work. It will change us. We will be changed. We will be transformed. We believe others will be changed and transformed. And we also believe this, that our our communities will be transformed. So would you consider the challenge to love the outsider, to love those who are on the outside by inviting them in? I want to invite the worship team up and We're going to have some time for response, some time for reflection, and we're going to sing some songs, and worship may be uh, singing a song that helps you reflect and respond, but it may mean something else, and there's a couple different stations around the room that while we're singing, if you want to come light a candle for somebody, maybe there's somebody in your workplace or in your neighborhood that right away you think about them when you think about an outsider. Maybe you want to light a candle and say a prayer for them. Or maybe you want to go to a communion station and reflect on Jesus and who he is and the work that he's done in our lives. And there's also a place to put your prayer request cards, your connection, your offering. 
Or maybe you want to go back to the crosses and there's people back there to pray with. But here's the reality, is the invitation is to be challenged. The invitation is to hear the word, but the power comes in our ability to respond, to have a response. So would you allow God to do that work in you? Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray.